Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Today marks a uh, special day because we begin a study of the book of Galatians. You may want to turn there, and I'd like to read just the introduction to the book. Because today is going to basically be an introduction to the epistle as a whole, and then we'll cover verses 1 through 5. Galatians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we embark today on one of the most important journeys of our lives. Whenever we confront the word of God, we are confronted with God. And we understand that this particular book that you have given to us is ripe with truths that are crucial to our salvation, crucial to our Christian lives. And so we ask, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the ministry of the sovereign and wonderful Spirit of God, that we might be able to understand and comprehend the truths that we will study. And we pray that you would apply it to our lives. In areas where we are weak, build us up. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If Galatians had been written today, it could have been typed on two and a half sheets of paper, stuffed in a small envelope, and with a couple stamps sent about anywhere in the world. It is one of the smaller books of the Bible. It is one of the shorter letters of Paul, and yet it is one of the most profound and important books in all of Scripture. And don't forget that big things come in little packages. The book of Galatians, though small, is terribly important to understand as Christians. It is sometimes called the Little Romans because it is, it is so full of important doctrine. It has been called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, the Declaration of Religious Freedom, the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther, uh, who was the, uh, the fan that flamed the fires of the revolution, and was married to a woman named Catherine, said this about the book. He said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it, I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. It was his keynote during the Reformation. One, of the, one commentator said it this way, Martin Luther put Galatians to his lips as a trumpet to blow the reveille of the Reformation. And if Galatians were written today, and addressed to today's church, I believe it would also solve a lot of problems that we have in our church. I believe it would be much harder for the cults to recruit Christians as they do today. There would be whole denominations that would evaporate overnight if this doctrine were understood and followed. There would be no confusing teaching about uh, uh, losing your salvation legalism or license by legalism i mean adhering to a set of rules by which you think you gain merit before god 
or license, by which I mean uh, a perverted sense of freedom in which you can do anything that you want to because you're a Christian. It would free people from the bondage that they feel to the law or rules, a certain set of rules that are imposed upon them, to feelings of guilt, to feelings of fear and doubt about their salvation. There's much to gain from this book. It is a very relevant book for us today. And in the days ahead, what we hope to do is take the book of Galatians and apply it to these problems that, that, that we see in the church around us, apply it to our own lives. Try to understand what God is telling us through it. Now, I, as I said, the book of Galatians has a lot of doctrines. In fact, it's a very doctrinal book, although you may be surprised to see that much of the doctrine is really just the emphasis of chapters 3 and 4. So you have two chapters at the beginning and two chapters at the end, which, which aren't doctrinal per se. And yet it's known as a doctrinal book because it is a very heavy doctrinal teaching. And I also know that there are some Christians who who prefer not to study doctrine, they say, but we would rather uh, talk about uh, how to raise our family and our kids and how to love one another and these kinds of things. But we need to remember that the word doctrine is not a dirty word. It was used throughout the Bible. And the word doctrine simply means teaching. Whenever we study the word of God and come to a conclusion about something, we have a doctrine. We study the Bible and we believe there is a God. That is a doctrine. We study the Bible. We believe that Jesus is God. That is a doctrine. And a doctrine is not a dirty word. It simply means teaching. And, uh, and we're going to go through the book of Galatians and simply see what is it teaching about salvation in the Christian life. But I believe uh, there are three real reasons why we should study the book of Galatians. And as by way of introduction, I want to go over these with you before we dive into the text. Why should we study the book of Galatians? First, because I believe Christians need to know doctrine. We need to know doctrine. Today, many Christians are doctrinally ignorant and fall easy prey to cults and perversions in doctrine and are tossed to and fro, as Paul said, by every wind and wave of doctrine. And so we have many errant views of, of uh, the gospel and uh different views of theology that uh, are floating around today, and we have to be careful. In fact, there is little theological preaching coming from pulpits today, and when there is theological preaching, it usually amounts to some, some uh, dogmatized system that is rarely supported from the Bible. And uh, we need to be careful to get our doctrine from the scriptures themselves, not from other theologians or from history or from our own notions. I think Christians also need to know doctrine because we have a crisis of morality in the church today. I've preached on this before, and I don't feel the need to support it. But the church is living, and many people in the church are living in immorality. The church in America can be characterized as, a, as weak morally, and I believe much of this has to do with a weak view of the gospel that is being proclaimed today. And uh, it is certainly not an emphasis of much of the preaching that is going on. There's a lot of different teachings on the gospel itself floating around or how to live the Christian life. For example, today there's a, a proliferation of conferences and seminars and books and tapes on, on, on family, for example. Let's just use that as one example. We could use psychology as another example. 
And yet, Christians have more family problems than ever. And the divorce rate outside of the church is about the same as it is in the church. And Christians are having just as much problems, it seems, with their children as the world is with, with their children. And yet, we've never had so many books and conferences about how to raise your family. The same thing with psychology. So many conferences that teach us to analyze ourselves and to know ourselves and to find out what personality type you are. And yet there are more Christians in counseling centers and seeing their uh, counselors and pastors and psychiatrists and psychologists than ever before. Why is that? It's interesting that when you look at the New Testament, you don't see Paul writing an epistle or a letter about how to raise a family or how to analyze yourself, isn't it? Paul wrote about doctrine. He wrote about a holy God, a just God. He wrote about the grace of God. He wrote about how to live a godly life and how to live in righteousness. And from that, we are motivated to have that holiness in our families and to get our lives right with God. Everybody wants to teach principles today. You ever notice? Everybody wants to boil things down to principles, but there's no motivation to follow those principles. My friends, Paul gave us the motivation in the holiness of God and the grace of God and all the doctrines that stem from those two very basic attributes. He gave us the motivation to have the kind of family life and kind of personal life that would glorify God. And so we need to get back to some very fundamental and basic doctrines. And that's why we should study Galatians. But in particular, a second reason that we should study Galatians is because of the, the specific doctrines that are actually emphasized in the book. And I'm just going to name a few of them and use them as examples. The most prominent one emphasized in the book that we need to know and know well is the doctrine of the gospel. What is the gospel? You would say, well, that's so elemental. Uh, doesn't everybody know what the gospel is? Everyone who's a Christian know what the gospel is? Not so. I remember teaching a Sunday school class in a Bible church and handing out three-by-five cards and saying, you've got one minute to tell a dying man how to be saved. And, and they wrote out what they thought was the gospel. And less than 50% of the answers I was, I was not satisfied with. With more than 50% of the answers I was not satisfied with. They're very unclear. What is it that actually saves a person? What do we need to know? What do we need to do? And uh, believe it or not, it is becoming controversial today in today's churches. You know, you usually pick up uh, these kind of things in the wind in seminaries. And so, and being in a little bit in that atmosphere myself and Garth being in seminary, we, we pick up the different controversies that are floating around in, in academia. And then, and then they usually get down into the churches. And then pretty soon the lay people begin talking about it. And let me tell you about a controversy that's been buzzing all over the seminaries lately. It's, it's about how is a person saved? What does it mean to believe? And that's starting to get a lot of other, uh, not only seminaries buzzing, but pastors and lay people are joining in the fracas. There's been a book published by a well-known author and speaker and pastor uh, known all over the world, published recently, a very controversial book that is sparking a debate. Uh, it has given rise to a, the controversy has given rise to a society that uh, I, with some others, have have uh, kind of formed called the Grace Evangelical Society, in which we are trying to define exactly what the gospel is, and I'm involved in, in printing, publishing their journal. 
It is a controversial issue today, and it will be more so in the decade ahead. I predict that it will be the issue the church faces in the next 10 years. And just as uh, to give some specific examples, you, you have uh, perversions of the gospel today that teach, um, for example, you've heard of the health and wealth gospel. That is a perversion of the gospel. You, I was driving down the street the other day, and I saw a big sign that said, on, in front of a church, a full gospel ministry. What does that mean, full gospel ministry? Does that mean that I'm preaching half a gospel? Or does that mean that they've added something to the gospel? And if they have, what did they add? And what does that mean? There's another gospel today called Lordship Salvation that teaches you don't just believe in Jesus, but you have to believe, but also do everything and be obedient to him in order to be saved. Be careful whenever somebody says, all you have to do is believe, but. Okay? Please be careful. So the gospel is an emphasis in Galatians, and we're going to, it is the major emphasis. Paul is defending it as a basis for salvation in Christian life, and we're going to examine that. Another one, and this is related, is the gospel of grace. What is grace? And again, you would think that everyone would know that grace is the unmerited favor of God towards men. But it's not that easy. People today talk about cheap grace, expensive grace, costly grace. What are they talking about? It's a contradiction in terms as far as I'm concerned. What, what I call an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is? Uh, it's, it's a contradictory term. Like uh, uh, dark light or something like that. Costly grace? How could something free be costly? And yet there are people saying there is such a thing as expensive grace. Grace is a key word in Galatians. We'll find out what that means as far as our salvation and sanctification is concerned. And there is a third area of doctrine, justification and sanctification. Those big words that refer to our salvation and our Christian lives. There are many who say that they are one and the same. There are others who divide them into two separate things. What is the relationship? of justification, the act whereby God pronounces us righteous, and sanctification, the, uh, the actual living out of our Christian lives where we, be, we become righteous in a practical sense. What is the place of works in each? How are our good works related to our justification and our sanctification? Another issue in, in Galatians is this issue and idea of law and liberty. Are Christians under the law? What purpose does the law serve in our lives? How do we respond to the law now that we're Christians? If we're free, then what does it mean that Christians have liberty? Can we do whatever we want to? What restraining conditions are placed upon our liberty? Is there such a thing as true and absolute liberty? And how do we keep liberty from leading to license? So we're going to study Galatians for these very specific and particular doctrines. And thirdly, we're going to study Galatians because we need the practical admonitions that we find there. Not only the deductions that we get from true doctrine, but there are two whole chapters at the end of the book of Galatians that emphasize proper living, and in which Paul takes these doctrines of the gospel and grace and liberty and applies them to our lives. And there he tells us how to, uh, how to respond to legalism, how to, how to respond to your liberty in Christ. 
how what part does love play in all of this? And he even applies that to things like uh, very particular things like how to restore a sinning brother or sister and uh, how to give of your resources. It's a life governed by our understanding of grace, but of course he has to set out that understanding at the beginning of the book. So we're going to study the book of Galatians because we need to know doctrine. We need to know the particular doctrines emphasized in the book, and we need to be able to apply them and heed those practical admonitions in the book. Now what I'd like to do is actually go into the text with you, beginning with chapter 1 and verse 1. And as we go through what I call the introduction, these first five verses, I want to talk about why Galatians is written. And, and kind of look at the whole book, the book as a whole, as we go through the five verses, because there are some good clues in the introduction as to why the book was written. There are many people, and you can just take my word on this perhaps, uh, but there are many people who also divide the book this way. A very very easy way of dividing the book of Galatians, since it is six chapters, is to think chapters one and two, it's one division, chapters three and four, and then chapters five and six. So you've got two chapters, three divisions. The first division would be personal, in which Paul is defending himself and his authority as an apostle. The second division, chapters 3 and 4, is polemical or doctrinal. That's what that means. Where he's arguing or defending the gospel of grace. The third division is practical, which uh, promotes a spiritual walk of faith in grace and in the spirit. So personal, polemical, practical. There's an easy outline, a very simple outline for you for the book of Galatians. But now I want to go into the introduction and show you how some things I think support this outline, or at least uh, these emphases in the book of Galatians. Now, notice how he, he uh, starts the book. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, it seems at the very beginning that Paul takes a defensive tone. And that is because, if, as, as we develop the book in days ahead, you will see that Paul's reputation, his authority, had come under attack by these false teachers who had come in behind him into Galatia with their false teaching. And, of course, you know that one of the best ways to discredit someone is by argument ad hominem. In other words, if you want to discredit somebody's argument, if you can't discredit his argument, you discredit him. And, and, and throw slander and false accusations against him. And then when people think that he's a bad guy, they won't believe what he says. And one way to undermine the truth of a teaching is to undermine the authority of that person who's teaching. And so these false teachers who came into Galatia cast all kinds of aspersions about Paul. They denied his apostolic authority, and by doing so, were able to influence the Galatians away from his teaching. There were probably several things that they said about Paul. One was they said that he was not a personal follower of Jesus Christ because he was not personally chosen by Christ uh, when Christ walked the earth. Um, he was, uh, you know, that he came along later after Christ had died and risen. Secondly, they, they uh, accused him of a derived gospel or a secondhand gospel. They were saying, well, he didn't, 
he wasn't he didn't study under the Lord himself. He got his teaching about the gospel passed down to him. And thirdly, they were saying that he was inconsistent in certain areas and doctrines. For example, this whole area of circumcision, which you'll see discussed in Galatians. Titus, uh, his companion, he, uh, he absolutely refused to have circumcised, and yet we know that there were others in his ministry that he, he actually encouraged to be circumcised. Gentiles, he encouraged to be circumcised, like Timothy, who came probably after the book of Galatians. But they're probably accusing him of inconsistency in his doctrine of salvation. Why did Paul allow Timothy to be circumcised but not Titus? We'll talk about that. So they were throwing these charges at him in hopes of influencing the people away from his teaching. But let's go back and word for word look at this first verse. Paul. What do we know about Paul? The leading theologian of the first century. But not just the first century. Paul is the leading theologian period. He is our theologian par excellence. If it were not for him, many doctrines about Jesus Christ and our salvation would remain in obscurity if God in his grace had not given us such a brilliant thinker as Paul and through him spoken to us the explanations of these doctrines. Paul was a Hebrew from the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, very righteous, uh, a Pharisee who studied under Rabbi uh, Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbis in his day. Paul said, according to the law, I was righteous. He kept all of the law. And yet, uh, he persecuted Christians. He was there when Stephen was stoned, you remember, in the book of Acts. And... Uh, and probably was responsible for the death of many Christians. And then, traveling to Damascus to uh, persecute and uh, pursue more Christians, he met the Lord on the Damascus Road. You know the account from Acts chapter 9, where Christ revealed himself to Paul, and spoke to Paul, and commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So he became a missionary to the Gentiles. A very talented man familiar with many languages, very capable and well-traveled. In fact, the Encyclopedia Britannica says that on, quote, on his numerous missionary journeys, the Apostle Paul showed a greater accomplishment in distances traveled than any known general of the Roman army, army, official of the Roman Empire, or traitor of his time. Paul got around. Very capable and urgent and driven man. He says, though, Paul, an apostle. Now, this is a little bit different because uh, in other epistles, it is not uncommon for him to identify himself as Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. And yet here he identifies himself as Paul, an apostle. And I think that tips us off that he's trying to say something. Here he begins the defense of his own authority. What does he mean, an apostle? Literally, an apostle simply means a sent one, one who is sent. Now, in the New Testament days, it had a very a broad uh, sense in which a person could be an apostle of the church. That term is found. But then there was also a very technical sense in which one was an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
And we know that the apostle of Jesus Christ was limited to 12 in number. To have that uh, designation for yourself, you would have to be one of the 12. And Paul calls himself an apostle, referring to the special commission that he received from Jesus Christ. And he, in, in my Bible, it is put in parenthesis after the word apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. What is he saying here? He's saying that he was not commissioned as an apostle by any man, nor through any man, but only through Jesus Christ and God the Father, that is, who sent Jesus Christ. And so his authority is not of human origin, but his authority is of divine origin and bestowed upon him by Christ himself. And obviously he is referring to that Damascus Road incident where Jesus revealed himself called him into his ministry, and commissioned him to go as an apostle, a sent one, to the Gentiles. He argues this later on, if you see down in verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's arguing that his authority is directly from Jesus Christ. And I think in doing this, he's distinguishing himself from those false apostles who had infiltrated the church in Galatia. And he was saying, I am not one of these self-appointed apostles. I got my commission directly from the Lord. In 1 Corinthians uh, 9.1, he says something similar because in Corinth, his authority was also attacked. And so in 1 Corinthians 9.1, he says, am I not an apostle? Did I not see the Lord? And that indicates to us that one of the prerequisites for being an apostle of Jesus Christ is that you had seen the risen Lord. And he had seen the risen Lord, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, last of all, he appeared to me. So Paul was commissioned directly from Christ and had the authority of Jesus Christ. And then he also designates that there were brother, brothers with him, brethren, in verse 2. He says, and all the brethren who are with me. If this book was written after his first missionary journey, it was probably written then from um, the city of Antioch, and, and the brethren with him would be Barnabas, who accompanied him on his first missionary journey, plus the leaders in the church at Antioch. So verses 1 and the first part of verse 2 is personal in nature. And you see that Paul is beginning, and that we see some hints that he is defending his authority as an apostle. And that will be the keynote of the, of the first two chapters of the book. He defends his authority as an apostle. But then, as we go on in the introduction, we see uh, a little bit of doctrine developed, and hence that he is trying to defend a particular view of the gospel. He says, to the churches of Galatia. Now let's pause there for a moment, because I think we need a little background on the church of Galatia. The Galatians were from a particular background, originating, originated in uh, Europe, and we don't know exactly what reason or why, but they were driven southward into, into the area of Asia and into the area of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, into the northern region of that Asia Minor Peninsula. And uh, they occupied that land, 
And uh, when the Romans uh, became the world power, they became under the Roman influence, although with a lot of freedom. And uh, soon the whole region of, uh, of North and South and Central Asia Minor was called Galatia. And so to speak of Galatia sometimes refers to an ethnic group, which were the Gauls who came from Europe, or also called the Celts. And it is also to refer to a Roman province. And so there's a big academic discussion about whether uh, the book of Galatians uh, was written to the northern ethnic group of Galatians, the Celts, Gauls uh, in origin, or if it was written to, in general, the province of Rome, which, of course, would, uh, could include the ethnic group, but also include many other peoples. Well, let's leave that in academia. It's pretty much of an academic question without a lot of consequence, because uh, whatever, whether it was written to North or South Galatia, in all likelihood, the people in general had a lot of Celtic background in them. They had a lot of ethnic uh, uh, unity, although there were also Jews and Greeks and Romans mixed in with them. Most likely, Paul wrote this book after his first missionary journey in which he went up into Asia Minor and visited these cities in South Galatia, the city in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and began some churches there. And, and, uh, and then after his travels, his first missionary journey, he returned to Antioch and probably heard about some problems that had developed, and so he wrote this letter from Antioch. But since I, I really believe that there was uh, a lot of ethnic unity and Celtic background in these Galatian churches, it would be good to ask exactly uh, what, of what consequence this is. In other words, what were the characteristics of the Celts, the Galatians? Lightfoot, who wrote a classic commentary on the book of Galatians, characterized the Galatian people in this way. He said, quickness, quickness of apprehension, promptitude in action, great impressibility, an eager craving after knowledge. This is the brighter aspect of the Celtic character. Inconstant and quarrelsome, treacherous in their dealings, incapable of sustained effort, easily disheartened by failure, such they appear when viewed on their darker side. And then he goes on to describe their temperament as basically fickle. Fickle. Easily given to change and new ideas. They were a passionate people who craved uh, an emotional feeling. And Christianity to them was new and exciting, but soon when that excitement and some, for some reason wore off and somebody came along with something else that challenged them with a new experience, they were quick to go to that. That's not unlike a lot of Christians today, is it? Christians who float around, hop around, place to place, church to church, shopping like they're shopping for some new brand of tea or something until they find one that just gives them just the right little fuzzy feeling that they've been looking for. Mindless of what doctrine the church teaches, what the church stands for, what's the history of the church, that doesn't really matter. It always amazes me how someone can change from one major denomination to another so easily and just ignore the differences between the two. That's an unscrutinized approach to religion, characteristic of the Galatians. And, and so I think that uh, looking at their character in this way, the reason I've developed it a little bit, is it helps us understand what happened and what the problem and occasion was for the epistle. Evidently, false teachers had come along after Paul. 
And through their persuasion and undermining his authority and through their new ideas, easily persuaded the Galatians from that original teaching that Paul had given. And so look at verse 6. Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Already they had turned away. And we'll find out that these teachers were what we would characterize as Judaizers. Judaizers were ones who, who came along with the Old Testament law and tried to make Christians back into Jews. The Judaizers probably originated with the Pharisaical attitude, and Christ had to counter that in his ministry. The Pharisees said that you're saved by keeping the law perfectly, and that law included their laws, man-made laws. So it was a legalistic approach. You have to do this and this and this to get into the kingdom of God. And then after grace was preached and people were saved and Gentiles were saved, there arose a great controversy in the early church. And so the council in Jerusalem was called and convened in Acts chapter 15. What was the controversy there? The controversy was this. Do Gentiles have to become Jews first in order to become Christian? Do Gentiles have to, to be circumcised? Do they have to eat certain foods before they can become a Christian. The conclusion of Acts chapter 15, no. Faith in Christ is all that is needed. And then the teaching that we encounter in Galatia is that these Judaizers were trying to add the same works to salvation and sanctification. And they were trying to throw works into the gospel so that there were certain things you had to do, like circumcision, in order to be saved. And they were also throwing in uh, a whole set of legalistic system and rules in order to stay saved. Oh, it's okay that you believe in Christ, uh, they would preach, but you also have to, to get circumcised now. And, uh, you know, it's not quite enough just to believe in Jesus. And so they went on to add certain criteria. That's pretty much the occasion for the epistle. The situation in Galatia. Now look at verse 3, his, his pretty standard greeting, where he says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, does this just a standard formality, or does it tell us anything about where the book is going? I think that it is a standard formality to say grace and peace. Grace, the Greek word, um, typical in a greeting. And peace, shalom, the Hebrew, typical also in a greeting. But yet it also, I think, emphasizes for us the whole theme of this epistle. Grace as the origin of salvation and peace is the result of salvation. And the false apostles didn't teach grace and so they had no peace. And unless you understand grace in your life as a Christian, you won't have peace in your life. You'll suffer under guilt and confusion and doubts and fears. And so I think there's something there that indicates the doctrinal purpose of this epistle. He's defending his gospel of grace even in his greeting. And then he says, uh, it is grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present age according to the will of our God and Father. He lets it be known that the grace extended to them is because of what Jesus Christ has done. What did he do? He gave himself for our sins. He died for our sins. The first essential of the gospel, as defined in 1 Corinthians 15.3, is that Christ 
died for our sins, something the Galatians had forgotten and ignored. But their salvation depended on what Christ did and not what they could do. And then Paul also in, indicates God's purpose in all of this, that it is according, uh, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. What did God want us to want to happen as a result of Christ's death for us? He wanted to take us out of this present evil age. Paul here typically typifies the Jewish mindset that separated the present age from the future age, the evil age from the kingdom age to come. This age is evil because it is controlled by the evil one. It is temporary. It is characterized by darkness and sin and the whole system that governs the world now ruled by Satan. And God came to take us out of that, this present evil age. Not to take us out physically right this moment, but to show us that there's another age to come, to make us citizens of the kingdom to come, though we are still living on earth today. And so Paul in another place in Romans 12, 2 said, don't be conformed to this world or age, same word, I believe, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're to live for the next age. That's why Christ died to prepare us for the next age. And so we see hints of what Paul is doing in the book of Galatians and how he defends the gospel, even in his introduction. And the polemic part of the gospel would cover chapters 3 and 4 where he expounds and details the grace of God and the gospel and the place of works and Christ's work and his death and the place of the law. But then in chapters 5 through 6, as I said, there's a practical emphasis where he actually tells us how to therefore live under grace. And do we see that hinted at anywhere in the introduction? Well, I think so. In verses 3 and 4, I believe that it's really hinted at, not explicitly said, but certainly implied, grace and peace to you. A life of peace is a life that is lived under the grace of God with a true understanding of grace. It is a life free from doubt and uh, guilt and uh, fear. And in fact, what does Galatians 5, is it 11 and 12 tell us? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, in what? Peace. And so it is implied that there is a practical purpose to all this. Paul wants them to exhibit and experience the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is peace. And then I think there's also practical side of his message implied in this word, deliver us from the present age. You see, not only is it a positional deliverance and a theological truth that we're delivered from this age, but it's a very practical truth because if he has died to deliver us from this age, then we should not live according to this age. We should not be conformed to this age. And so he's going to tell us some things and how we can prepare for that kingdom to come. How we can live for that new age, the kingdom age, the messianic age in the kingdom. We're to be delivered not only theologically, but practically. We're not only to have positional righteousness, but... Uh, everyday righteousness in which we become more like Christ. And then Paul ends the gospel with the doxology, a word of praise in verse 5. He talks about God our Father and says, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Glory is an essential attribute of God. Just in thinking about the grace of God, 
Paul is moved to make this exclamation because the gospel of the grace of God brings glory to God. Everything that is done and said in this world, the reason for you and me being alive and being saved is to bring glory to God. And it's this glory that he sees forever and ever as opposed to this very temporary present evil age. The glory of God will continue. And he says, Amen. Amen meaning truly. For as Jesus is tra translated in Old King James as verily, verily, amen, amen. Truly, or this is true, or this is affirmed as true. It's absolutely correct. Alan Cole, a commentator, wrote this. When the old-fashioned Cantonese-speaking Christians, Christian says at the end of a prayer, Xing Sam Shou Yun, excuse my Chinese, which means with all my heart, this is what I wish, he approaches very nearly the original Hebrew meaning. With all my heart, this is what I wish. Amen. Let me say this as we close today's message. I just want you to note and get a feeling for the urgency of this epistle to the Galatians. I'm excited about the study ahead. But as we study, I want you to sense the urgency and importance of what, about what Paul is writing here. For example, in this introduction we've just studied, there is no commendation of the Christian. Whereas in almost all of his other epistles, there is a word of approval and commendation, complimenting them on their faith and love. Not here. He gets straight to the matter. There's nothing he feels moved to commend them on. I want you also to notice the very personal approach he takes as we study the book of Galatians. Because he has to defend himself, and there's a lot of biographical material. And he throws his whole person into the epistle, and you will find it is, it is probably the most emotional of his letters. Maybe this in 2 Corinthians. But the language used here is the harshest and most emotional, especially in chapter 1. Why? Because what he says is crucial. And therefore, Galatians is a crucial book to Christians. There are some things that are too important to guess about or to be uncertain about. And one of those is the gospel. How a person is saved. How you are saved. There can be no doubt in your life. It is too crucial. And so Galatians is the gospel of Christian freedom because it frees people to know how they're saved, to experience the grace of God in a life of peace, which means you're peaceful because you know that you're saved and you know that you can't lose your salvation and you're resting in the finished work of Christ and instead of your own efforts. Nothing I want more for you than for you to experience that freedom in your life. If there's any doubts about your salvation, I want them to be removed as we go through this study. If there's any doubts about how to live the Christian life and whether you're doing things right and whether you're finding approval in God's sight, if you're suffering under a burden of guilt or fear or legalism, or if you have the opposite attitude that anything goes in the Christian life, you will also be burdened by that in the end, by the way. I want you to experience freedom through our study of the book of Galatians from the days ahead. That will be our goal and the end by God's grace. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website 
at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.